Trigger warning. This podcast discusses themes centered around emotional, physical, and sexual violence. While the stories of the survivors are meant to be inspiring and informative, listener discretion is advised. If you are struggling with any of the aforementioned issues, links to resources can be found in the show notes of today's episode. I like I believe domestic terrorism, domestic violence, it's very similar. It's like he was trying to instill fear and terror in us when we like in our own home because I don't think he was comfortable or happy and misery I hate it's like such a simple stupid statement but like misery loves company and I think that's what he the more he got rejected by the outside world the more he exacted his revenge or his anger on us hi survivors I'm Tara Newell and I'm Collier Landry and this is the survivor squad podcast yay another episode another episode a post-crime con episode tara oh yeah how was the live that we did what how was the live that we did the live podcast yeah the live podcast how was it i don't know know. what i'm talking about were you not there I'm, you're like, how was it? I'm like, I don't know. How was it? I, I was there. <laughs> I did it. I didn't watch it again. <laughs> Are you sure you didn't watch it like a hundred sh- times? We should be asking the audience how it was. Yeah. What did they think of it? That's what we want to know. No, we had a lot of fun in Orlando. We got to see all our friends. Jamie Rice from Murderish. We saw Tyler from Minds of Madness. We saw Madison McGee from ice cold case we saw so many people there yeah and madison had um, a very unique bag that she made oh my gosh the bag so madison got all these bags ordered that said did you kill my dad and i walked past it and i have a dark sense of humor sometimes and i'm like oh we should customize that to me (laughs) and then we made a bag they made a bag for me after my suggestion saying that it was okay to joke about my trauma like that. And it said, I did kill my stepdad. You did kill your stepdad, which is very true. And speaking of that, we got to see Matt Murphy, who would have been your prosecutor from the, the OC. He was in the prosecu- DA's office for 17 years, right? And he's well known now. He's like on 2020 or 48 hours or Dateline or ABC or something. He's living his best life. Yeah, he's doing all the stuff. He's on um, 2020. He has an ABC contract. He was uh, also hosting the Clue Awards at the <laughs> at CrimeCon, the Clue Awards. And apparently there was a lot of kerfuffles. And we also met, finally met Joel, fr- uh, Joel Waldman from Surviving the Survivor. We met Brandon, where we you got to meet Brandon. I met him last year from Music City 911. There was a lot of people. We saw a lot of friends. Kimberlea was there. Obviously, with Kimberlea, True Crime. We'll just go drop all the names in this episode. I got to meet, finally, Kenny Kinsey, Dr. Kenny Kinsey from the Murdoch case, who was on my podcast. And he's so nice, isn't oh, he? Oh, yeah. Him and his wife. Oh, yeah. Him and his wife, Dee Dee, were so nice. They drove in with their Ford F-250. You got the make and model of their car? Oh, yeah, because the valet couldn't park it. They're like, we don't park 250s here. That Because it's such a big truck. Uh-huh. That would swallow my truck. That's funny. (laughs) (laughs) Well, all in all, our crime con experience was very good. Uh, We gave out a lot of stickers. You sold some of your mom's books. Uh, We sold some shirts, some merch. It was great. And we have one more show coming up here in October. We're going to Obsessed Fest, which there were a lot of people that were going to Obsessed Fest at Crime Con as well. So they're just making the festival circuit with us. Yes, yes, we are. We're going to see Justin from Generation Y. He's going to be at all three with us. Yes, he was there. And, you know, thanks to you, because food was of scarcity there in our little enclosed. We had we were like in a little uh, ecosystem at the Marriott there at the World Center Marriott. But you got reservations at all the places. And um, the food was, uh, yeah, it was OK. But, you know, it was ed- <laughs> it was edible. We survived. We did not get the coronavirus, which I'm very happy about. (laughs) Well, today, as our listeners know, and so we have kind of a heavy episode. Like, what a surprise, right? We have Amy Chesler, whose mother was murdered by her brother. And it is a wild story. Uh, Her mother's day that she was killed was on September 25th, which is actually National Murder Victims Day, I believe. Yes, it was. And today... 
Also, in honor of the release of her episode, it is my mother Noreen's birthday. Yes. And you should be getting some flowers sometime today, just to know, let you know. Oh, that's very sweet. Thank you. Of course. And, you know, it's important to remember our loved ones. And I can't speak for this because I haven't been in that situation, but I can only imagine what it's like to lose someone call your yeah, moms are important. Moms are important. But um, we won't get into all of that with me, but we will let Amy tell us her story. What do you think? Yes, let's get into it. Let's do it. And so at any cost, every step of the way, he was looking to, to be like manipulated, manipulative or to control the situation. It, that's like another red flag. If someone has to control all the time, then um, yeah, it's just, it's interesting when I get a more perspective of my brother in the situation and as you get of John and as if you get of your father, like you can get an eagle eye view of the behavior and the tactics that they use that... Um, yeah, it's really sad, but it's, I hate to say it. It's like so textbook um, and without the proper edu- information in the textbook, you know, textbooks have taken a while to update, basically. Like we're updating the textbooks live with our conversations in essence. I'll also say this, that that I, I guarantee had this happened now or a decade ago, my father would have used a way to game the system. Absolutely. I think it's only by the grace of God that he did that in 1990, mm. that he was that he was convicted in 1990, because the things that he's trying to do, like the, the way the legal system is now, and it feels to me, I think Tara, you know, Tara, you guys can weigh in on this, is it's almost anti, anti-victim, anti—it's very pro-criminal for whatever reason. Uh, it, it almost seems the more egregious the violation is, the more protections the criminal has, which I guess is, is good in some ways, but also when it works against everyone else it, and they, they really are a vicious perpetrator, like these three different individuals we're talking about, your brother, my father, John Meehan, that it, 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 it's, it's, it's problematic <laughs> to say the least. Yeah. No, and that's why I... One, one thing I like to share about my journey or the why I talk about it is because I think litigation abuse is a real thing and more people need to know it exists, that people, that abusers can use the legal system and weaponize it and use the tools that are actually supposed to protect us as victims as tools for them to further abuse people. I mean, I don't know if it's gotten worse, to be honest. I think America was kind of founded on <laughs> protecting the people. I I don't know. Uh, but yes, no, it's definitely, I think we're realizing we're becoming more aware perhaps of these holes in the systems because victims are finally speaking out. I mean, I think we're finally becoming being given a platform or giving ourselves the platform, to be honest, to say what we need to say in order to exact change and pinpoint where those holes lie. I think it's also that the perpetrator is innocent until proven guilty. And then the victim is always like, not innocent. <laughs> yeah, no, the onus of responsibility uh, in every, that's why they're that show, like, what, what is that show, like, Victim Perpetrator or whatever it is? I, I didn't watch it yet, but um, there's a show on Netflix where basically people are going in to report crimes and then they're going, getting charged with something because in the system is basically, it's just really messed up. Um, yeah, I, the it is interesting because, of course, we want to be innocent until proven guilty. We want to live in this country where we believe that we, you know, there's enough, they have to have the burden of proof. But then again, for victims, it's also just a burden, the burden of, um, you know, that's why there are campaigns like Start By Believing. I know you, you guys have probably heard about it, but like, yeah, I know, I think I've seen similar likes and shares, but um, yeah, Start By Believing is a, that the campaign that's basically saying like, you just have to believe victims. That's the first step, like leave the door open for people to even report 
And that's a crazy concept that like that's even that is a hurdle. I think that it's honestly really interesting because any facet of humanity, you're going to get people drawn to it for a reason, right? You're going to have like police officers that they're either drawn to it because they want to make a change and they want to be good. And you might get some guys who are drawn to it because they're power hungry. Teachers, you might get some people who want to make an impact. And then you might get some people that are going to be preying on children. Like there are so many different reasons. And unfortunately, in the victim community, similarly, we can get people who really authentically want to make change by sharing their story. And unfortunately, at times, rather rarely because of the way victims are just received in general, I think. Um, no one wants to come out and make these statements because we're attacked whether we're being truthful or not, right? Like the, the, the conversation about victimhood or around victimhood is so nuanced and painful sometimes that like there really is no value in, in reporting if it's not true. However, yes, of course, sometimes we get that. And, um, yeah, it's just, it's all very, doesn't negate, again, those bad cops don't necessarily negate good cops, bad teachers don't necessarily negate good teachers. It just makes the conversation so much more layered. Anyway, I didn't mean to like, take it all to the, <laughs> I, I like, it's hard to not like discuss all the nuances of every system because they're all so layered and interconnected, I think. But yeah. No, and this is the conversations that help people open their minds i do believe that yeah i'm personally curious like you said you were taken in by your family was there a funeral like how did you begin to start okay he's committed this crime he's arrested you said that evening yes what happened what what came next <laughs> uh there's always something um you know after that evening again he was immediately jailed people don't realize that once you get charged with the crime, you get put in jail. Once you get convicted, you're going to prison. Um, so it took, again, four years, four and a half years to convict him. In that time, he played the system deeply. He he executed litigation abuse against me. So basically, he, you know, he has diagnoses, of course, they're, um, I think they're extremely wrong. But he's supposedly bipolar. He has, he supposedly has bipolar disorder. Tourette syndrome and obsessive compulsive disorder. Those are his three diagnoses. Um, I think he's he has slid through a system that's very, <laughs> again, defective. And he has other diagnoses that are more fitting, but he hasn't gotten them. So in that, he basically played the system using those diagnoses. Again, he weaponizes mental health, he weaponized the system. He got on meds, he got off meds, he got on meds, he got off meds. That was making him fit to stand trial, not fit to stand trial. Um, you know, it, I guess it's all textbook shit, I, I suppose. Um, he, uh, what else did he do? He, um, he tried to say he was, he was pleading no, uh, no, he was pleading not guilty by reason of insanity, not, not by reason of insanity, by reason of diminished capacity, because supposedly insanity would have been much harder, but with diminished capacity, um, he was like, well, you know, I was on drugs. I have this mental illness. All of those things laced together. I wasn't thinking right. However, what it came down to legally in those four and a half years, the the lawyers came back with, no, that's not true. We won't accept that because you told your sister not to go home. That implied you knew you did something wrong and wanted to shelter her from something. That's how they were seeing it. Um, so, or that's what they said. So that that got rid of that um, charge. So that was like, I think, three years in. Then at four years, he tried to hire a hitman to kill me from prison. Um, those letters, the way it was found out was he wrote letters to an inmate who was basically supposedly getting out, I guess. It was jail still. And people go in jail and then they get out of jail. Um, and sometimes they go to prison and sometimes they don't. So my brother, I guess, had befriended someone that was in jail he wrote letters of a stalking plan like this is my sister go tell her that uh, you know that she planned the murder and um tell her that uh I, like he basically said in this letter which i have seen uh evil lives here showed it to me and actually after many years they gave you know like that was huge for me to see it because i had heard about it from the police but i had never actually held it in my hands they had just read it to me um and basically um, 
what happened was, uh, yeah, he tried to say that I killed my mom. I planned everything. I told him that there'd be so much money, which there never was. So I don't know what the hell he's talking about. Um, uh, it's it just insane. Like all of this shit that he's fabricated in his mind. Like I created this really intense plan. I'm the evil one. That's, this is what he's writing basically that um, he's been like trying to free himself from me, blah, blah, blah. It's insane. Um, and he gave it to this guy. And basically the guy realized that he was not quite right. Um, in, not, not quite balanced in the situation and there was something fishy and he turned those letters into the police. And at, he also mentioned to the police that he, Jesse didn't write it. He had written this stalking plan, like go to her house. If she says she didn't do anything, cover her car and post-it notes. Like we're going to get you. I mean, it was crazy. Um, and he also said like, if she ultimately doesn't admit that she did anything, ha kill her. So at four and a half years after her, my mom's murder, I had that death threat hanging over my head. Um, and then uh, the inmate turned in the letters and the next month he pled guilty. So that was his last ditch effort to kind of not go to prison. He ended up going to prison um, nine years later, only nine years later, he had his first parole hearing at which he threatened my life, which I, what I said he was. So I only got about a nine year reprieve between the, the, the conviction and after all of that abuse had the 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 death threat hanging over my head though um i thought well he was caught so like it kind of had assuaged me my fears but i was just like oh jesse might meet somebody else that so that's always going to be a fear of mine at this point even though he's in prison forever my biggest fear was him ever getting out obviously my second biggest fear is him finding someone to hire to kill me um i suppose that that might be always a possibility but I can't live in extenuated fear forever, I suppose. Um, and I'm sorry to go backwards a little bit. You did mention a fun uh, funeral. In the Jewish religion, you actually have to bury people pretty fast. So I believe it's like a seven-day rule. Um, that was a relative issue because um, once a body, you know, someone's been murdered, they have to be processed and you have to prove whatever. Yeah, that's why I asked, yeah. Yeah, so there was like a slight delay but I finally got her and I got thrown into being an adult. I had to go buy her a casket. I had to go, you know, I didn't have the money. My aunt, the one that adopted me, paid for it. And I paid her back eventually when a small life insurance policy paid out. Um, but yeah, I had to go be an adult at 22. I had a house to manage. I had, um, Lord, a, a funeral to plan. But I actually kind of felt... I wrote in my book, like I kind of felt like it was, my mom was a, always a host. She loved to have people in her home. She loved to cook. She loved to like, it was just her happy place. So I felt like I threw her one last hurrah. That was the funeral for me. Um, and it was just, I my ex-husband, his mom was actually at my mom's memorial. And she said to me when I met her, I saw you at your mom's memorial and I always thought, who is that beautiful woman with the radiant smile? And I like I, that always kind of struck me as a kind statement, but it also I was like, wow, that's so weird. I like she remembers me smiling at my mom's funeral, but to me that is the feeling I had. Like I felt like I was throwing her, her, like it was like my time to step up the plate for her. Finally, I had never done that before because I was I had graduated college like two weeks before. So um, yeah, it was it was actually a really beautiful event. Um, I don't know if you guys heard the Moshe Blechman episode of my of what came next, but he is a Holocaust survivor. He was my mom's Hebrew school teacher. He ended up doing the service at my mom's funeral. So it was very symbolic that I had him as one of my first 10 what came next guests because again, he survived this horrific tragedy. He survived my mom's entire life and has known my family my entire life and to be able to share his story was really exceptional so that's just such a beautiful like sentiment to her too yeah i love yeah. to honor her that's one of my main i'm sure you you know you guys understand but my one of my main missions you know i have a lot of missions in this space but just so my mom's death is not in vain so other people can learn from her but also just to keep her alive my in ninth grade English teacher was my first book review on Amazon. 
like when my book came out and she said it was a love letter to your mom. And that struck me so deeply because I didn't realize that when I was writing it, I guess. Um, I felt like I was just telling our story, but I guess I honored her so deeply and that like moved me so much because that is quite literally one of my major missions in this space too, is just to make, you know, to never lose her fully. That's wonderful though. I, I know the feeling, so. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Now, I want to ask this question because I, I just know you on a personal level. And I know a lot of people out there kind of ask me this question. How do you talk to your kids about mm -hmm. something like this? Or even like, when do you tell them about something like this? It's a really, really great question. And it's super layered. I think I went into the experience Sure, I would wait till they were like, my oldest one was 18 and my youngest one was 15. And like, I was good, you know, I had it in my head and then I got a divorce. And then my ex-husband told my kids that I had a brother in prison. <laughs> and I was like, oh, okay. Um, and they started with the questions and they didn't know to ask these questions before. So they asked me, you know, I guess my kids had been doing a family tree project. My daughter was doing one at his house. And, you know, he nonchalantly said he had, a, they had an uncle that they had never met. And they were like, why? And bloop. And so they came back to me and they were like, well, why? Why is he there? Is he there forever? Can we go visit him? These are the questions I was receiving. And I was like, absolutely fucking not. And they were like, why? 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 You know, as kids do. Um, and I had to say to them, Finally, you know, my kids, I think I told them when they were nine and six, which is a lot. That's half of what I was planning, right? That was literally, <sighs> but um, they, I didn't tell them everything. Obviously, I haven't shared the entire trauma, but they're brother and sister. And the last thing I on this planet that I ever want to recreate is an abusive relationship like the one I had. So there are nuances, and I'm sorry I tear up at this, but like there are nuances that I had to share with them anyways, where I would say they already knew going into that conversation that I had had an older brother who was relatively abusive. And again, the abuse conversation is really layered. So I talked to them about lighter, you know, mechanisms of abuse that kids might see, or I called out their abusive or their manipulative behavior towards each other, right? So they could know. Um, so the conversation kind of was already a little started. Then I told them, you know, my brother is in prison for murdering my mom. Um, and they were immensely empathetic, like mind blowingly for their ages. Um, but they also were like, like, this was a conversation I'd fabricated in my head a thousand times out of worry. And then I had it. And, you know, this big bomb had been dropped. And then they were like, okay, so what's for dinner? And then we carried on. And then the conversation kind of just got chewed apart again over the months after that, right? And it's never one, I didn't have to give them everything in once. Uh, many times the conversation would just start because they would be looking at me and go, you're really strong, mommy. I can't believe what mm. you've been through. Yo, like you have no, like it has been so mm. healing to have that conversation and to have many layered conversations, but that are age appropriate. They don't know the layers of the abuse I faced. They don't know how my mom was murdered, that it was a knife, that like there are things, they know I am triggered at times with things in the media. And they might put two and two together throughout their lives and they'll have well they'll ask more in-depth questions as time goes on but it really has been very cathartic to express that to him, them and then also to just see like cycles healing and to watch that happen live you know and even I saw cycles repeating in my marriage and that's why I ended it and so they get to see just complete it, it's just so like freeing and healing to redo it the right way and to like honor my mom in my parenting. I'm a lot like my mom as a parent. I don't yell. I believe yelling is abusive to a certain degree. Um, and I know that's like a layered bow. I get a lot of shit for that as like a parent writer and things like that. People do not like that I say that, but I wouldn't yell at a friend, right? Or so I just... So I, I try, I do my best. Uh, sometimes there's a little bit of like, you know, getting firmer, but um, 
they respect the shit out of me because of the conversations I've had with them um, about my trauma, but also just about life. And I respect them too. And like, it's, again, it's just been immensely healing to be a parent. I say it's the loveliest slap in the face because sometimes they knock me out with their sayings and what they say to me. But um, yeah, it's been wonderful. And um, I I see a lot of like, I'm, I'm, I'm creating allies for victims in them. So that's been wonderful too. That's great. That's great. So, but I will say for other people that have gone through trauma, um, anyone listening that might say like, okay, so how do I approach this with my kids? I would say do it as naturally and as organically as possible, just like with everything um, and answer what you feel comfortable. And you know what I did say to them a lot? Like my mom, before that conversation about my brother murdering my mother, my kids would say, you know, my, they knew my mom died really young. They knew I was sad about it. They would say, how did your mommy die? And I would, you know what I would say to them when I wasn't ready? I would say, I don't want to talk about that right now. It makes mommy's heart hurt too much. And you know what they would say? Okay. And they'd move on to another topic. So until I knew I had to answer it, you know, and there are ways to honor their feelings and be honest, but just not give them everything because they're not adults yet. And they know that there are movies that exist they can't watch. So there are conversations they can't have. You know, there's just that's a boundary I lay in my home and they respected it until I had to respect their their wisdom and their relative maturity and their ability to receive information. And then again, it probably maybe my work is something that's made them mature a little bit faster. They know what I do. They know what I'm my mission. They know, you know, I talk to them not about all of the interviews I do, but um, I've actually told them about both of you. And they know relative versions of your stories uh -huh. because uh -huh. I want them to know that we're badasses and we're changing this space and we're doing a lot with our, our, you know, they see movies where this happens, right? They see bad guys, you know, get caught and, and killed, or they see d daddies hit their, you know, wife. Like they see these stories in movies. Why can we not talk about the actual ramifications of them in society with children in a logical healthy way fit for kids. So, um, yeah, I just, it's been really, really freeing and healing, but just don't do it before you're ready before, you know, you have the words, even I think also sharing trauma in a therapeutic space with a therapist first, or like, you know what I mean? Just making sure you're not dumping trauma. <laughs> I had packaged it enough where I knew what I could say and how I could say it. And I think that helped. Um, and it doesn't have to be publicly. It could totally be in therapy or with a friend or whatever. But yeah, I do I do believe in open honesty even with our children. That's wonderful. That was a yeah, that's a great question, Tara. Thank you for asking. Uh, people ask it a lot. Um and I but I always love answering it. Well, I have a friend and her well, she was kidnapped and sexually trafficked in Utah for a crazy amount of days. And her child knows nothing about her trauma but her child is obsessed with kidnappings <laughs> interesting wow so we're like oh and i just you know i'm curious as a nurturing woman like how do you deal with that and how do you approach it if i were to deal with that in the future you know yeah. Um, you know, I, I actually had a guest recently that I asked this question of, and she gave me a really, she's the first person that kind of like said virtually what I said, but um, Jan Broberg, I know we've talked about Jan Broberg. Jan Broberg is the, um, is the woman who was shockingly and guttingly ad uh, abducted by the same man twice. Um, and yes. So she's, her story is, amazing and and gutting but she i asked her you know because her son actually works with her and i was like i'm love this dynamic i was like i'm just i love this so much when did you tell him how did you share that and she said when he was like five or six she shared so it was just um yeah it was just really interesting that we all we all have different you know approaches to things and i think it's just important to honor that honor our trauma honor our children and be as honest with our kids as possible, but not in like a traumatic way as <laughs> Yeah. 
you know, I was going to ask, and I, I think Tara's thinking the same thing. How do you handle triggers with your children? I'm sure things must be triggering for you. What are those things and how do you explain that to them? Yeah. Oh, gosh, I've actually had that exact. That's a, such a good question. I've never been asked that question. And I think parenting inherently is extremely triggering. So as trauma survivors, <laughs> I think it's extremely important. No, like that's actually when when I had kids, I quit teaching and started focusing on my shit and writing and healing because I was like, I can't do this the way I want to do this if I'm so triggered. And my marriage was extremely triggering as well. So that was a portion once I freed myself from that um, and that that, you know, the mechanisms we kind of had fallen upon and created, um, I was able to be the parent that I really wanted to be. And that was the space when I could really check my triggers. And when I finally did that for myself, it looked like sometimes I was triggered, right? Where if my kids yell, if my kids yell out of nowhere for no reason, that's really triggering for me. And you know what I do? I say, guys, screaming is for emergencies. Because mommy's body goes <gasps> the moment you scream. I think something terrible is happening. I'm literally like, I'm literally yeah. there. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I will constantly remind them. Annoyingly at play dates and stuff, I'm like, screaming is for emergencies. Screaming is for emergencies. Mommy, if they're not getting it, I'm like, mommy's heard. Mommy grew up in an environment where there's a lot of there was a lot of screaming. I need there to be peace. I literally will be open like that to them. Um other things, if I see my son or my daughter being manipulative or, you know, not abusive, well, you know, kids, it's generally more rivalry or something like that. But sometimes, you kids know, are like, kids. They kids hit. are mean. Kids, kids can are be hit. mean. Kids can hit for what they want or grab out of their hands or whatever. That's stealing. That's abuse, you know, like even microaggressions. Um, any of those can be really triggering for me because sometimes I get put back where I was with my brother, right? So um, I. If I ever do react in a way that my kids don't deserve or if I get triggered, honestly, I, like I said, I don't yell. That doesn't mean I never, ever, ever 100% don't yell. I don't yell 98% of the time. That 2% where maybe I have my period. <laughs> maybe it's the uh, anniversary of my mother's murder. Maybe it's anything. Maybe it's a really shitty day. I've I don't know what it is, but if I am triggered and I do raise my voice or I do, you know, um, I don't know, give them a consequence that they don't necessarily deserve, um, I will apologize. I say, you guys, I'm so sorry. A mommy was triggered in that moment. I use that language with them. They know those words. They know now. My, I was in a meeting the other day and I, my kids, like I, I closed my door and they got triggered because I wasn't accessible to them. You know what they did? I come out, my son is cooking and he goes, I'm stress cooking. He's seven. <laughs> okay. So I'm giving these kids That's as funny. much as I talk about things, right? Like, but he knows I was like, I laughed so hard. I was like, you, I was like, you just found a coping mechanism. I said, and I explained, but a coping mechanism, I said, if you were bothered, and you didn't know what to do. And, you know, I didn't lock them. If it was an emergency, I could have heard. But they're old enough to take care of themselves like that. Like, he actually asked. He did come in my room and was like, can I can I get celery for myself? Can I prepare it? And he has kids' knives and stuff that are safe. Um, and I was like, yeah, buddy. And he was like, I was stress cooking. And I was like, buddy, that's so brilliant of you to even recognize that that's what you were doing. I was like, that is a total coping mechanism in the future if you feel stressed out cooking could be a really great tool for you. And that's like, I'm literally talking about them about that in those words. And I think I'm helping them become very self-aware and relative, eventually actualized human beings. I hope that's the goal. So yeah, that's, I just tell them, I'm like, sorry, I was triggered or, Hey, that was great. You stress cooked. I, you know, we all, I, I also tell them we all, we all mess up. We all fuck up, you know? Um, and as long as we say sorry, um, yeah, that's all. I tell them I was triggered. I apologize. And we, we move on and we love on each other. And that's it's the best thing ever. <laughs> I could not. I, they know I want a thousand children. Mm -hmm. I like I tell them this all the time. <laughs> and I'm like, it's only because you guys are so amazing. If you were, you know, <laughs> anybody Aww. else, I don't know if I'd want a thousand. <laughs> no, but I love them so much. Aww. So, yeah. That's Any great. questions about them? I love that. 
I love that so much. And I think it's so important to build that self-awareness because that's something I have to teach with a lot of my coaching clients is that self-awareness of, okay, what is triggering you right now? What is making you stress? You, What are you doing to cope with that? Yeah. And I also, to be honest, they will say to me sometimes, oh, we were at Universal Studios yesterday and while we're in a line, my son looks at me and goes, Mommy, I'm really sorry yesterday. I think I was rude to you and, and I just, I was just hangry. And I wanted <laughs> to come up with these, with these excuses. But in that, I'm like, okay, so what could we do next time to keep ourselves from feeling that way? Like, that's a legitimate feeling. I get it, buddy. But like, he's like, well, I could tell you earlier that like, I'm hungry. I'm like, for sure. You could go grab yourself a snack. You, we could like, this was like the day before, you know, you know like we you could, there are so many ways you can attend to your needs or even like think ahead of them and like just you know like yeah and just talking through anything and la labeling the emotions labeling the triggers or identifying the triggers and just helping them come up with tools to either get through it because shit like that happens or uh you know trying to be preemptive because that's like kids are not preemptive thinkers that's the thing like that's the one of the most triggering and, and frustrating things about kids it's like how did you do that and not think that through dude but it is a reality and um, yeah, it's just about checking ourselves and helping them learn to navigate the weather or the world, you know, in the weathery storm that is life. I laugh because I think that Collier has to help me with my hangry triggers sometimes as well. Oh, we, yeah. No comment. I, I definitely. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's important though. And yeah, I, yeah, check in with yourself for sure. I'm, that's, a, that's one thing I'm trying to teach my kids. It's really hard because kids don't want to do that. They just want to play and go wild, but you know, it is what it is. So yeah, I just, I, I am someone though who I don't think kids are for everybody. Not that I, not that I, I'm like, if, if someone has an inkling, I'm like, have kids, have kids, have kids. But if someone is like, I don't want kids, I'm like, I just don't believe in a societal pressure for kids. Um, I, growing up, if you look at pictures of me as a little child, I grew up in LA, like Calabasas is in LA. Um, I went to Disneyland all the time. All the pictures of me as, children, as a child are with other kids I thought were cute and not Disneyland characters. I did not care about the characters. I loved, I have literal like my mom had to have them developed. They were on rolls in the 80s, right? I have all these strangers' children in my family memories of me standing there next to them, just, you know, smiling with a stranger's kid because I thought they were cute and I always wanted to be a mom. So I, this is all coming from a person who like, I mean, I've only worked with kids up until now, up until I had my own kids. I literally only worked with kids. I literally lived and breathed children. Um, So yeah. That's why, that's another reason why I just fucking, I, excuse my language, but I like live and breathe for my children. <laughs> that's funny that you said that because I, I, when I go through photos of me as a child, like I have the same thing. I'm with these, like, I'm like, who is this random kid? And I can't ask anyone because <laughs> like no one knows. You know, I didn't grow up near Disneyland, that's for sure. But when we went to the one time we went to Disney World, and of course I posed with the chipmunks and whatever. But like, I do have these these pictures with random children that I don't know. I'm like, where, like, how do I know this person? And I'm like, oh, I'm just, I'm just like, this is my friend. You're my friend today. So now I'm going to take a photo with yeah. you. My mommy wants to take a picture. <laughs> That's so cute. That, that speaks to your warm nature. It speaks to something. I guess I was not like that. <laughs> Everyone in the photos, I could tell you exactly who that kid was. That yep. is so-and-so that I met on vacation in Montana. Their family was this and that. <laughs> but so I, I love that for you guys. <laughs> I, I love it too. I tell my kids about that. But yeah, my daughter, she doesn't want kids. Like right now, she's like, I just want cats and ducks. And I'm like, cool, kid. Like whatever you want. Yeah, like I'm – I don't – I – I think everybody is different. I think one of the problems in the world is that like we, my kid just said this today. She literally just said, she's like, people like to put their expectations and, and what they want on to other people. Oh, and I was like, yeah, you're right, buddy. Like way too much. Yeah. Cause she, we were talking about how she wants to get her ears pierced and she was like wondering what her dad would think if she just got one ear. Right. And I was like, do it, whatever. And she was like, well, what, what would daddy think? And I'm like, 
whatever, fuck it. She's like, you know, people just put their, like, it's just because he'd want to. And I'm like, whatever. And she went into that thought. She's like, it's like my teacher, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, yes. But once we share our story, it's so funny. Kids say the darndest things. Um, Stress cooking and expectations were just the most recent things. Um, Yeah, actually, the other day, my son walked into a meeting. This is not, uh, (laughs) but he held up his his pad to the screen and it said his shopping list on Amazon. And it said, um, God, what did it say? It said drunk boyfriend. I was like, great, (laughs) great, great. I don't know where he's learning this shit. Yeah, it is. I will, in my defense, it's the same shopping list that he has at his dad's. He can add it everywhere. So I'm like, I think he did that. I think he did that over there. I'm going to put it over there. (laughs) I'm going to put it on him. No, I'm kidding. But yeah, the kids say and do the darndest things. And I love that too. I think that's another thing though that can be triggering for people is that kids are just wild cards. You cannot lead with expectations. I once took them to Disneyland and both days... We stayed out there and they were done by 2 p.m. And they were like done, done. And I was like, all right, we're done. <laughs> okay, I, I paid for this vacation, but we're ending here now. Um, yeah, and you just kind of have to, I think, t- to be like the healthiest, balanced, most balanced, balanced parent, you have to roll with the punches. But having PTSD or CPTSD or surviving major trauma, that's super hard. I think just in parenting, I kind of rely on my skills as a former teacher and former educator more than anything. And that's like my source for patience. That's like the number one thing (laughs) for anything. Yeah, I could talk about my kids forever. (laughs) I love that so much. Well, your kids seem like they're adapting into this world and adapting with trauma. And I feel like you're the person that is helping this generational trauma move forward and move past like you're breaking those barriers i'm trying i think that's i think that's like my number one goal like i'm not able to leave this world with any source or feeling of contentment if i can't know that i'm healing my family and leaving them healthier because I just got a tattoo, actually, that means the exact thing. It, it says tikkun olam in Hebrew. And basically, that meaning the meaning of that is we're each born with the personal responsibility of healing the world. And we each removing idolatry, idol removing that we each have the same equal responsibility. Um, you know, nobody has a greater impact on the world or, ha- you know, unless we choose to make less of an impact. Um so I think that my, my, I like, I, I have to, it's like in my gut, I have to make the world a better place, whether it's, you know, I think making the world a better place, even in, within your home is still doing that. I think it's, it's, if you change within your home, you change further out. We talk about Collier, like we, our moms were so impactful, right? Unfortunately, on the opposite end, John Meehan also made a great impact on many people's lives in a negative way. But we have that choice. We get that choice. Each human, I believe, to a certain degree, has that choice of, you know, and I I choose to constantly, like, I have to break the cycle. And also, I feel like it's, it's kind of fucked up. But I've always felt like my brother was like my arch nemesis. I didn't always feel that way. That came out wrong. I, when I was finally at the end of our journey and the relationship, I felt like he was my arch nemesis. And with the negativity and awfulness he's brought into this world, attacking that correctional officer, his girlfriends, my mom made me and him and that's it. So I feel like for all the wrongdoing he's done, I have some of the responsibility and I know I don't, but I give it to myself sometimes of just doing so much better that I like negate some of that bad. I know I can't, but I'm trying anyway. <laughs> I think you're doing your part. I'm sure Tara would concur. I concur. Thank you guys. Well, I think that's the perfect spot to kind of wrap up unless you have any advice for anyone going through something similar. I think that I, I love that advice. I mean, I love that question because I think it is always helpful and important to leave the listener. I mean, well, anybody, but like every time I do anything, listener, TV, whatever, I do like to leave some sort of like tangible piece of knowledge or takeaway. I think that 
right now, you know, sometimes that changes. That's a, that's a common question. I love the question, but it changes. And that's why I love it because sometimes a piece of advice I give today might, might not be the, what I give in a month or whatever, but right now what resonates with me is, um, grief is not linear. I think that people look at us like all three of us as a source of relative inspiration to get through some hard shit. Everybody goes through hard shit. Everybody has trauma, whether it's trauma like ours, trauma not like ours, it's all trauma. We said right before, we said quantitative, quantitatively, qualitatively, it's all trauma. It doesn't, we can't compare. But going through that and grieving through that, because I think in all trauma, we have to grieve it. There's this these feelings we have to process. A lot of the times that's grief. That's can be an overarching kind of feeling. Absolutely. Yeah. And even if it's there's no death in it, it's still disenchant disenfranchised grief. Where the idea is it's a grief, but maybe not um, a death or a murder or you know, you felt you were grieving you weren't grieving John, but you were grieving a sense of safety, Tara. You know what I mean? Like, so I think in that is just knowing that grief is not linear. You know, I'll do a podcast or a TV show or something like that. And people will say, you sounded really angry then, or you sound really peaceful here. I'm like, yes, because I'm going through a journey right in front of all of you. <laughs> and this is me grieving live. Um, and grief is not linear. It does. It looks different. I think it's important for people to know. It took me 16 years to get here. I didn't share my, I wrote for Chicken Soup for the Soul for like, seven years before they even knew that my mom was murdered because all my stories were about the positive side of her impact. I needed that first. So, and then I felt like, okay, I've processed enough of my emotions. Now I need to talk about what we went through because, right? So there's just this, this idea that when trauma happens, we kind of have to compartmentalize or we have to survive. We have to get through. The idea of victim mentality is so sick and sad, I think. You know, I do understand the nuances of it and how some people or people, not some people, but I think almost everybody at times can get stuck in our feelings or, you know, but I believe victimhood and survivorhood can be forever. And that's not at our fault or anything. And we just need to allow ourselves to go through that. It's not linear. It's not going to look like mine or yours or Collier's. Um, it's, you just have to process, you have to get through and you have to honor yourself. And I think that sharing, whether that looks like how we do it or looks like in a di diary, or it looks like in the therapist's office or to your partner, whatever it looks like, you have to do that and allow yourself to go on that path. Again, ain't going to be linear, but get on the path. That's my, my advice. I always say to Tara, we're all a part of a squad that no one really wants to be a part of, but we're all a part of the Survivor Squad. And Amy, where can we find you on social media, your podcast, everything? Uh, you can find me on all platforms at Amy B. Chesler. And my podcast is called What Came Next. Um, I am very honored uh to be building a community similar to yours. And I wanna say that I love the title Survivor Squad. It is reminiscent of the idea. And one of my missions is that when I shared my story for the first time on Something Was Wrong, um, season seven, I got so many messages from people who said, thank you for sharing. Thank you for naming sibling abuse. I had never heard of that. Some people had whatever it was. Um, and I got so many messages from people just saying, you made me feel less alone, right? That's that squad. And that's the, the kind of the third final piece of why I share is to offer healing to other people. Because whenever I get those messages, I know how I feel when I get them. When I feel, when I read them, I get feel less alone. So I know that in that squad, in that community, there is so much healing and knowing that we aren't alone. That's like the first step. That awareness makes us feel like we can survive. And then we can change this shit because <laughs> stuff's got to change. But yeah, that's, you can find me at ABB Chesler everywhere. Um, what Came Next podcast and my book, What Working for Justice is available wherever books are sold as well. Thank you so much. 
Thank you. I love you guys. Thank you for having me. <laughs> I just love Amy so much. I didn't know her full story when I met her. And I, it's just heart-wrenching. I, I just don't know what to do in these types of situations. But it's so important for her to get justice and to get her brother to stay in jail. Well, yeah, she was obviously successful. I mean, he's he's obviously pretty good at keeping himself locked up by making threats and doing all kinds of crazy shit. But, you know, just the the fact that right when the thing that speaks out to me and this is the same thing with my father, who was very manipulative, you know, and trying to cause a lot of trouble is it, it you think it's done you think you can move on with your life and then they just sort of reach back it's like the scene from the the godfather part two every time i'm out they see they, they bring me back in or maybe it's godfather part it's from the godfather series al pacino says that they bring me back in every time i think i'm out uh yeah godfather part three sorry pet sorry cinephiles i messed that up but <laughs> But, you know, you get dragged back into the drama, dragged back into um, just all all of it. And it's very, it's really heart-wrenching. And, and the, the threats that she had from him and stuff, it's just so good to see her and turn it into such a positive experience. Look, her podcast, you know, our, I, I love our podcast, but hers is also fantastic. What Came Next, we're both on it. And, um, you know, she's done something really positive with her life out of all this tragedy. Yeah, no, and I just love that we were able to, like, put our podcast out around the same time, talk about it, collab in a sense, not, like, collab where we, like, are working on each other's projects, but, like, just, like, oh, we're going to have this person on, we're going to have this person on, and really just, like, working together with that aspect and lifting each other up like she's been so supportive of the podcast we've been supportive of hers it's really important to work together as survivors as i always say the light of one candle does not outshine the light of another in fact yes. we all help to illuminate the world even more right yes i got a trope for everything these days <laughs> <laughs> You're just so handy. You just pull out a quote or something. You know, I, I, I do have my silly little quips. Big thanks to Amy for joining the program and for sharing her story so bravely, for sharing the stories of other survivors. And, and uh, she's done a wonderful job. And uh, so check out what came next, wherever you get your podcast from. Uh, it's, it's really, it's great. And check out Tara and my episodes. They're the yes. best. <laughs> yes, check it out. Well, until next time, survivors, I'm Tara Newell. And I'm Collier Landry. And this is the Survivor Squad Podcast. We'll see you guys. See ya. The Survivor Squad Podcast is made possible by support from listeners just like you. Please subscribe via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from. And please consider supporting this program by visiting our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash Survivor Squad.